Hello and welcome back to the weekly Bunker Roundtable with me, Andrew Harrison. Coming up on today's show, is it war yet? There's a flurry of diplomatic activity across Europe, but is a Russian invasion of Ukraine inevitable? Boris Johnson removes all COVID restrictions by coincidence right in the middle of the most difficult weeks of his prime ministership. Is this wise, Prime Minister? And on TV, Neighbours is cancelled, probably. What future armour is coming back? Which shows would we cancel and which would we bring back from the grave? All that and more in this week's Bunker. Welcome back to The Bunker. Remember, you can help keep us providing top quality podcasts six days a week by supporting us on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast or follow the link in the show notes. You can sign up for as little as £2 a month. That's even less than your avocado on toast bill. Right then, let's meet today's panel. Arthur Snell is a former Foreign Office diplomat and host of the excellent Doomsday Watch podcast. Hello, Arthur. Hello. Um, so we will be doing Ukraine in some detail in a bit, but uh, there's another bit of former diplomacy stuff on the go. What do you make of uh, Mauritius challenging Britain's ownership of the Chagos Islands? A flag has gone up. Is this the new Falklands? Well, there are certainly aspects of it that you could say are slightly similar to that story, but I doubt very much we'll see any military action, thankfully. Uh, For those not familiar, Chagos Islands, sometimes called Diego Garcia, uh, far into the Indian Ocean, they there there was a population there that was forcibly removed by the British in the sixties and early seventies in order for uh, Britain to have a military base there. And over the years, American uh, air force in particular have been heavy users of this rather strategic base in the middle of the Indian Ocean, useful for flying sorties over the Middle East and so on. Um, but of course, the poor islanders themselves have fought to try to uh, regain the right. To, to return to, to their old home. And remarkably, in, in the last 10 years, they've won three court cases in rather significant international courts, so UN-backed courts. Um, and it is on the strengths of that that Mauritius, which during the colonial era was always the sort of regional uh, overlord, if you like, of the Chagos archipelago, Mauritius is uh, striking its claim to sovereignty. And um, in law, they seem to have a rather strong case. Of course, in practice, it would be difficult probably to dislodge the British. Even if the British wanted to dislodge them, which we shouldn't, we should let them have the Czech Islands into their islands. Uh, Also with us, we have the Atlantic staff writer, Yasmin Serhan. Hello, Yasmin. Hello. So uh, Canada, trucker protests are uh, in their third week in Ottawa. Uh, COVID protesters blocked a bridge into the US causing car plants to shut down. This is not very Canadian, is it? Yeah, our neighbours to the north are usually very calm. And mm. yeah, so this has been this has been a bit different. What's, what's been going on? So here? the mayor of Ottawa has declared a state of emergency. Canadians have been saying the police have lost control. Um, what's your take on it? I mean, this is we don't expect uh, this kind of sort of COVID extremism to erupt in a place as calm as, as Canada. And yet clearly it indica- indicates that this stuff is spreading around the world. Yeah, certainly not in a country like Canada, which last I saw has a vaccination rate of over 80%. So that's quite significant. Um, But I think what's crucial to to note here is that, you know, 
these protests, the Freedom Convoy, as it's called, um, which is made up of, uh, you know, largely of truckers, but a variety of other people, um, they are not opposed to lockdowns. These are not like anti-lockdown protests. What they're specifically opposed to are cross-border vaccine requirements um, that were put in place by the Canadian government. And what they effectively want is for those requirements to be withdrawn and for Justin Trudeau to step down. These protests are significant, I think, in the sense that they're very significantly disruptive, particularly Mm. if you live in Ottawa. You know, they've seen their streets paralyzed. They've seen their kind of, you know, city centers taken over. Um, But I think it's worth kind of taking a step back. And and this is something that I've touched on in my previous reporting, which is that in in, in countries such as Canada and including Britain, but also the U.S. where vaccines are widely available, actually vaccination is quite popular. You know, in countries such as the United Arab Emirates, Spain, Britain, they have vaccination rates as high as 94 percent, 81 percent and 72 percent respectively. To put this into um, perspective that I think Brits in particular will enjoy. More Brits have been vaccinated today than watch the Euro final between England and Italy, right? So vaccination is popular, but I think where things get tricky is where these requirements come in, right? And Mm. what we are seeing, and I think what people are kind of um, looking out for, my colleague David Frum has done a piece on this, is whether these va- whether these types of protests, other freedom convoys are going to go global. We've seen copycat protests in New Zealand, France, and Belgium. Um, but I kind of question whether there's going to be a lot of momentum more globally. I mean, this is not the George Floyd uh, protests of summer 2020. And I think crucial to, to that is the fact that there are not vaccine requirements elsewhere around the world. We don't have vaccine requirements here. So I don't I don't know if I necessarily see this kind of catching on in a big way, but I think it's certainly one to watch. So the the, the, the same people shouting Jimmy Savile says at Keir Starmer while wearing a Canadian flag are, <laughs> are shall we say, outliers? I think so. I mean, because even those protesters, I mean, that we're not seeing mass protests, right, mm-hmm. of the kind that we, when we never really have them. We've seen some pretty big anti-lockdown, anti-vax protests. But, you know, increasingly, I find myself questioning what it, exactly it is these people are protesting. You know, there are scarcely any restrictions left. So I think there is a desire to sort of have common cause with all these groups around the world. But I don't I don't know if we're going to see it. Our special guest today is Philip Stevens, columnist for the Financial Times and author of Britain Alone, a book which looks at Britain's place in the world from Suez right the way on through to Brexit. Welcome to the bunker, Philip. How are you? I'm great. Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, we're going to be talking about, uh, you know, uh, Ukraine. We're going to be talking about vaccine mandates later. But I wanted to ask you, the, the huge news story of the weekend was Cressida Dick's resignation, her uh, forced resignation from the Met. Um What's your take on that? I mean, how bad are things for the Met when this is happening? Well, I think it was unsurprising. I mean, there have been a succession of uh, episodes, uh, incidents, scandals, depending uh, where you're standing, which has severely damaged the reputation of the Met. And this has been going on for several years now. And, you know, I think there are two things to say. One is it's a very difficult job. It's the only police force in the world that has to, one, police the capital, a capital, a huge capital city, but two, have all these national responsibilities, including things like anti-terrorism, anti-fraud, protecting diplomats, perfect, protecting the royal family. So it's a very big job. My own view of Cressida Dick, and I've, I've met her and I've sat down a, a couple of years ago at a private lunch where she laid out her, her strategy. Um, that she's an intelligent, well-meaning police officer who had lots of good ideas, but she's very much the tactician rather than Mm. the strategist. And given 
the number of incidents in which we've seen this sort of poisonous culture of prejudice and misogyny at the Met. What it needed and still needs is a leader who's going to take, you know, have real authority, look at the big picture and say, I'm really going to shake this police force up. I spoke to a few uh, people connected with the Met over the weekend. Um not sort of, you know, uh, your kind of stereotypical cast of the Sweeney, you know, uh, defensive old school coppers sitting in pubs, but people of quite progressive mindset. And they describe the atmosphere in the Met as being similar to, almost similar to a bereavement uh, that Cressida Dick was going. She was very popular within, you know, not just that traditional aspect of policing, but also the more progressive end of it. And what was the, they described it to me as an impossible situation in that she was faced with a massive backlog of vetting because the Met lost 23,000 officers under austerity and Net can't keep up with vetting them as it replaces them. I mean, one of the things that uh, someone told me was that um, we, we want the Met to look like London in terms of its makeup and in terms of the diversity of, of police officers. But on current trends, it's going to take 47 years for the Met to look like London, to represent the kind of racial, ethnic and gender makeup of, of the police. Do, do you think that it is this un- undoable job? Well, I think it's an extraordinarily difficult job, but I don't think any job is undoable. You could say, you know, being prime minister is um, an undoable job, given all the problems. Look, the Met needs more resources. I think that's obvious. I think the, you know, the present government's fiscal squeeze after 2010 did a lot of damage, clearly needs more people. But I think above all else, it does need leadership, which would have allowed her to take on some of the if you like, the more backward, deeply prejudiced um, enclaves within the Mets. And they really have to be rooted out. And I don't think she had the authority or the leadership qualities to do that. Do you think that the the slow response to the Partygate allegations contributed to making her position untenable? I don't, actually. I think that was used a little as a sort of in parts of the media is another stick to beat her with. I don't think they handled it terribly well. On the other hand, I think it's pretty difficult as, you know, as we've found for dealing with a Downing Street led by um, someone like the present prime minister. It's pretty difficult. And the police really don't want to get into politics. So I think it was always going to be difficult. But, you know, I don't think that's a capital crime, as it were. The Ukrainian-Russian border remains extremely tense. Armed Forces Minister James Heapy has warned we are closer than we've been on this continent to war for 70 years. Defence Select Committee Chairman Tobias Elwood has compared the current situation to the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. Nations are withdrawing their citizens. So where are we and what's likely to happen? Arthur, um, this stuff is being updated by the minute uh, on, on news websites. Doubtless by the time people hear this, it, what we're talking about will be a little bit dated. But a couple of weeks ago, you spoke to journalists on the ground in Ukraine for a special edition of Doomsday Watch. Even then, war felt imminent. It hasn't actually happened yet. What is the latest situation? What are you expecting? So as of Monday afternoon, at the time of recording, there's been, I think, two significant developments which probably should relate to the next 48 hours. One is that there has been reporting that the US intelligence view is that on Tuesday, tomorrow, the 15th, uh, there is a scheduled Ukrainian military exercise taking place. And there's a chance that the Russians might try and disrupt that or exploit it in some kind of false flag operation. And a lot of people are saying that Wednesday is the day 
that Russia's military operations are planned to begin. Now, and this has been a feature of the last month, a lot of declassified intelligence has been pushed out into the uh, open, particularly by the Americans. And in so doing, the clear objective there is to uh, disrupt the Russians' own plans. Now, if the Russians are were planning to invade on Wednesday, they might be less likely to do so now that it's been announced by the Americans. So what we're seeing here is a very high-intensity information war. And it's interesting because, of course, historically, the Russians are seen to be the real experts in this space, uh, and the Americans are, are now pushing it. So it is very hard, as a dispassionate observer, to try to peel away what is information warfare and what is actually happening. But it is clearly high, high tension at this point. Defence Secretary Ben Wallace says there was a whiff of Munich in the air referring to the diplomacy uh, efforts at the moment and the fact that uh, certain uh, countries have been perhaps less enthusiastic about that. Um, what do you think? I mean, is, is, it, is it unworthy to be throwing the word Munich around because it's such an emotive term? I think it is a bit. I, I don't want to go too heavy on Ben Wallace because I think by most accounts he's he's done very well and he's 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 a former professional soldier. He's a good Defence Secretary. And he gets on with his job and he doesn't seem to be too engaged with the kind of political merry-go-round in Westminster. So I respect him for all of those things. Uh, I think Munich can be used by some people as an insult. But as Robert Harris's recent book and the Netflix movie have shown, there's an interpretation that Munich was a clever bit of diplomacy that won a bit of time for the West to prepare for an inevitable war. Now, I'm not sure where Ben Wallace sits on that debate, um, but I think that the uh, frantic diplomacy that we're seeing and is ongoing. And even today, there was a video of uh, Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov speaking to Putin and Lavrov basically saying to Putin, yes, we need to keep doing the diplomacy. Now, people who don't like diplomacy might say, well, that's just giving Russia more time to make their plans. But I don't think it's as simple as that. So I think it's good that it's happening. We spoke about this a few weeks ago when it was first becoming a, a clear possibility, the idea of you know, what Putin hopes to achieve from this. Now, as we kind of get closer to what seems like the uh, the make or break moment, is Putin achieving what he wanted from this to kind of uh, probe and disrupt and uh, discredit the Western alliance? Well, I would start by saying that nobody knows what Putin wants, and that's the biggest problem. And he's always been of a secretive uh, tendency, not surprising given his background in the KGB, but he's become particularly secretive in the light of the COVID crisis. He seems to be very paranoid about getting the illness. All these pictures of him at the end of absurdly long tables, which are becoming rather funny, uh, mm. is, is an illustration of that. He, he literally can't be physically close even to his key advisors like Lavrov and Foreign Minister, uh, Defence Minister Shoigu. So we don't know what he wants. Uh, but for example, Russia's coercive diplomacy has uh, shifted the debate on Nord Stream 2. This is the notorious pipeline that connects Russia and Germany. So that now, if Russia doesn't go to war, they're effectively going to be rewarded with the continuation of Nord Stream 2. Whereas six months ago, the debate was whether or not there should be a Nord Stream 2 at all. So it's arguable, perhaps, that Putin is getting some of what he wants. But I don't think he's going to get a repositioning of Ukraine in the sort of global uh, security architecture. Because ultimately, whilst I don't expect Ukraine is going to join NATO, not now or ever, that's my own prediction, uh, Ukraine is clearly going to seek 
security support and assistance from Western countries because it is quite obviously threatened by Russia and it's being threatened at the moment. So in that sense, I think Putin is very unlikely to uh, increase his control over Ukraine as a result of this crisis. Yasmin, whether this is a good or a bad day for um, diplomacy is going to be determined by what happens by Friday, isn't it? But um, what have you made so far of of, of Biden's um, stance and also of uh, uh, you know Britain's contributions, such as Liz Truss's uh, hat wearing cosplay? Oh, the uh, Instagrams, mm. the Instagrams. Yeah, I mean, it's it is interesting even to just hear um, Arthur discuss kind of the U.S.'s approach, which has been to sort of throw all the sort of declassified information out there. Um, and, you know, if, if that's a strategy that works, that's that's great. But, you know, there there seems to be a lot of tough talk and, and also, interestingly, a lot of a lot of trips. I mean, you're suddenly seeing loads of leaders going to Russia. Um, I think even Bolsonaro is due to be going this week. He had Macron there earlier. Um, and I as someone who is admittedly not a Russia or Kremlin expert, I did wonder, I was like, is this part of like an appeal? You kind of suddenly have everyone coming to you kind of, you know, seemingly almost to kind of, you know, negotiate and then potentially offer carrots or in, in the U.S. approach sticks, right? Because Biden has been has been uh, pretty tough, um, you know, to even talking about Nord Stream 2, saying that that would be canceled, um, offering admittedly, as far as I've seen, I think... I, I'm not at all clear how the U.S. would effectively cancel that. That seems to be a decision. Maybe it's like that... a cancel culture thing, really. We right. just like, never talk yeah. <laughs> about it and say it's bad rather than not, not use it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine that's a conversation that, I mean, that's principally a conversation that I imagine would have to be had with Germany. But but even to Arthur's point, I mean, one of the results of this could be that it started up again, right? But I mean, even I, I believe in November, Germany actually froze the process of approving it um, due to geopolitical pressure. So... For someone, and and I, you know, I pity listeners who also are probably like me, who Russia and and, and the Kremlin are per- perhaps not their beat. I mean, I think it's kind of complex to sort of follow everything because you're you're being like, wait, hang on, we're we're on the cusp of war, and and trying to understand sort of what that is. But also, I mean, if you're an everyday Ukrainian, and and I, um, the Atlantic actually published a pretty moving photo essay of some of the country's civilian soldiers. I mean, you have to remember they've been on the edge of war for the best part of eight years. Mm. And even listening to Russians, you know, I mean, I spoke to a pollster because I was just curious to kind of understand how your everyday um, ordinary Russian is seeing this. Mm. And interestingly, this pollster told me that actually, um, you know, Russians by and large are quite fearful of war. Um, but also this is not a subject they like to engage with very much. And they very much kind of therefore see it as a sort of thing where Russia is being dragged into war. That seems to be the kind of narrative. So um it feels like something I don't understand fully, and I feel like the the stakes keep <laughs> getting ever higher as the days go on. So, I'm I'm waiting with bated breath. I'm sure, like many of us, Philip, your book takes a look at UK's global role, beginning with Suez right the way through to Brexit. If we're adding an extra chapter now, uh, I mean, how are we going to be looking at Britain's role in this particular crisis? Because it seems to be, as I just mentioned, largely composed of photo opportunities. Well, I think um, what's pretty obvious is that we have been sidelined, essentially, as far as the politics and diplomatic part of the story is concerned. The work, the heavy lifting, insofar as it's being done, is being done in Washington. And I'm among those who think the Biden administration has done a, a really good job with its diplomacy. I mean, once Western countries, and I think, you know, everyone agrees on this, decide that they're not going to go to war to defend Ukraine, then diplomacy, coercive and constructive, is the only option. 
And I think, you know, Biden has done very well in the tactics, in in playing the information game, but also in broadly speaking, holding together NATO. And there are lots of different views within NATO, uh, keeping above all else. And the two key European players in this are Germany and France, keeping them on board for pretty draconian sanctions if Putin does go ahead. Now, Britain, as really happened in 2014 with over Crimea, Britain has rather stood on the sidelines here. Now, Ben Wallace, he has um, had a bit of a role in NATO because we put some military muscle into reinforcing the NATO states uh, in Central and Eastern Europe, and we have supplied weaponry to Ukraine. But as far as the foreign secretary is concerned, who clearly has a problem with geography, she doesn't really know the Baltic (laughs) from the Black Sea, and she doesn't know which provinces of Russia are in Russia and which which provinces are in Ukraine. I mean, she's looked entirely hopeless. And it's, you know, the idea that Boris Johnson, um, with or without his present political difficulties, could be a convener of Western governments is, you know, quite frankly, a joke. He's disliked, mistrusted, and essentially ignored insofar as that's possible among allies by the Americans, the French, the Germans, and others. So we've been very much on the sidelines, um, shouting to be heard. uh, And perhaps that's, you know, that's the reason for some of the more sensational um, uh, uh, headlines that ministers have sought. And as we saw that, you know, the foreign secretary is much more seems more interested in her Instagram account than she is on, you know, the threat of the first big European war since 1945. Mm. Um, In December, Chatham House issued a report which set out a lot of what a lot of us already kind of know, uh, that Britain has become a clearinghouse and a money laundering location for what it calls transnational kleptocracy. Uh, it pointed out that between 2010 and 2019, the Conservative Party received three and a half million pounds in donations from donors with a Russian business background. Um, can the Conservatives really stand up to the Russian government and its business associates when it's in hock to Russian business? Well, it will have to if Putin goes ahead. And, you know, that's been the hypocrisy of um, much that's been said, you know, since 2014 and the you know, and the annexation of Crimea, that we are going to take a tough line. And indeed, since, you know, the attacks by Russian agents on, you know, the attempts to kill British and Russian citizens in the UK. I think, though, if Putin does invade Ukraine, and I'm one of those who still has doubts as to whether he'll go in, um, but if he does, then I think, you know, once and for all, we'll have to clear the Russians out of London uh, and go back to the sort of settings we had in the Cold War, where people just are not allowed to use our capital markets to raise money, are not allowed to spend time in London in very large houses in the most expensive parts of London, brushing up their reputations with the with the help of smart, expensive PR companies and um, smart libel lawyers. Um, as well as um, 
Boris Johnson making his various visits. Uh, Keir Starmer met with Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO, uh, in Brussels, uh, becoming the first Labour leader to meet a NATO chief in more than a decade. Starmer has also wrote quite a stinging piece about the Stop the War Coalition and Associated People, uh, their failure to stand up to Russia, uh, their failure to kind of identify where a, a threat to a, a democracy exists. Starmer is clearly positioning Labour as very, very different on foreign policy to Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party. And yet in the same weekend, we saw a tweet from Diane Abbott basically reiterating a, a, a full Putin line that this is all down to NATO. It's all NATO's fault. Um, is, is Starmer picking a, uh, a, a wise fight inside his own party at the moment? Well, I don't think, you know, those sorts of comments from Diane Abbott, and we saw also from Young Labour today sort of complaining about NATO aggression um, in Central and Eastern Europe. I don't think they can go unanswered. And I think, mm. you know, Starmer is taking a conventional position with an eye on, if you like, the middle market electorate. But I mean, it is extraordinary that there is a section of the Labour Party um, led by Corbyn, but, you know, extending well beyond him, that looks at the present situation, sees 130,000 Russian troops camped on the borders of Ukraine, Western troops withdrawing from Ukraine, and calls that NATO aggression. Something has gone very badly wrong. And if Starmer wants to win an election, he has to basically stamp on that and tell people that that sort of, if you like, that really is appeasement yeah. of Putin. That has no place in the Labour Party. You know, and you know, if you look back to the foundation of NATO, of course, um, you look back to the Labour government of 1945. Yes, Starmer should be sent, should be tweeting out images of the NATO logo with founded by the Labour Party uh, yeah. asterisk and others on it. Um, yeah, it is. It's remarkable that you know the response is almost knee jerk. Anything involving Russia, Russia must clearly be the wounded party, no matter what. And it's and, astounding that that, that that it seems to accept Russia. You know, imperialism is a terrible thing, except when it's Russian imperialism which says Russia should be able to decide what Ukraine, Belarus, Georgia and all these other countries should be doing. It is absolutely extraordinary. Well, I guess in the next couple of days, we're going to find out how this plays out. But Yasmin, I just wanted to ask you one thing before we move on. Um, your colleague at The Atlantic, Tom McTague, uh, recently wrote a fantastic piece on Putin saying that he's actually the, the product of modernity in Russia and not a kind of retrograde, nostalgic, mm. rebuild the Soviet Union figure. He's, he's a product of the modern uh, modern Russia and the modern state of global politics. Uh, as our resident expert <laughs> on populism, um, do you think that's part of, the, of why he's been able to retain power? Certainly, yeah. I mean, I, I thought Tom's piece was great and very much worth reading, and in large part because I think he also touches on a really important modern phenomena, which is leaders, particularly kind of, you know, nationalistic, autocratic leaders, really weaponizing um, history um, and sort of national stories for their own political aims. I mean, we saw it in Putin vis-a-vis um, Ukraine when, you know, he wrote his, I think, 7,000 word essay talking about, you know, this historical Russia. But, you know, we've seen it in the U.S. where states are determining what, what schools can teach vis-a-vis -vis yeah. the history of slavery. You know, we're seeing it in Hungary with Viktor Orban revamping school curriculums to promote, you know, pride in the nation. We're seeing it in India where Hindu nationalists are um, increasingly sort of trying to kind of throw away India's sort of um, pluralistic founding, sort mm. of throwing away that story and trying to replace it instead with sort of this very Hindu Hindu nationalist vision. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think if, if you look at that trend, you can actually, once you recognize it, you can start to see it everywhere. 
Now, some good news. We're pleased to announce that we've got COVID done. At least that's what the government is telling us. In the Commons last week, Boris Johnson told MPs that all remaining COVID restrictions in England could end later this month, as opposed to March 24th, as originally planned. It's been nearly two years since COVID restrictions first came into effect. But is ending the rules finally the right thing to do? Or is the Prime Minister trying to save his own skin? Yasmin, what would lifting all restrictions actually mean? Is this a gamble? Certainly some people think it is. I mean, effectively what it means is, as I understood it, at least scrapping the legal requirement um, that you have to isolate um, if you get COVID. I mean, if you really think down to it, we, we have very few restrictions left, but that's kind of one of the last legal um, sort of, I guess, barriers in, in a way. Um, so effectively, that would mean, that I guess, from the end of this month, um, if you get COVID, the expectation being that you would simply do the right thing. It would be government guidance to isolate, but you wouldn't be, um, you know, subject to, to fines or other legal consequences. So, I mean, the current COVID data is moderately encouraging, albeit largely from Omicron. Mm. Um, Hospitalizations are falling, death rates remain around, vaguely around normal winter rates, but case numbers still remain high. Um, None of this precludes the idea that the next variant could be entirely different, could be much more serious. Um, Do you think it is the right the right move. I mean, from a personal standpoint, and obviously I'm not a scientist. I, I think when I when I heard the news, I was quite um, shocked because you know, whilst I think like a lot of people have sort of welcomed the reopening of of things, you know, kind of seeing some bits of our life go back to normal, um, kind of basic requirements like the idea that you isolate. It's just one of those comfort things, right? And I think throughout this whole period, a lot of these rules and regulations have given us all a sense of comfort. Mm. Effectively, what the government has done by, you know, scrapping the rules around masking and things like this is um, asking us all to trust each other to do the right thing, um, which, you know, I, I know that I personally going forward, should I ever get sick with COVID or pretty much anything else, I'm going to stay home and I'm going to isolate. But I, whether everyone else does that, I have no idea. Obviously, you know, isolating it can, can for some people be quite costly and impossible depending on their job. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, as for whether it's risky, I mean, I think that's that your point was exactly right that, you know, at the present moment, thankfully, cases going down, the booster campaign haven't gone as well as it has. Um, you know, one might rightly question, if not now, when? Like if, if, if the government was ever going to start pulling back restrictions, now would seem like the right time. There's sufficient vaccination and also probably sufficient, um, you know, uh, enough people have gotten COVID that one might expect that hopefully the risk would would, would have been reduced, certainly compared to um, the end of last year. But yeah, at the same time, who knows when the next variant will come around? And I imagine this is going to be the sort of thing where we cannot make rules that just kind of last in perpetuity, right? Yeah. The government is going to constantly have to be responsive to new things that come up. It's going to be like the terror threat used to be in the corner of the news, yeah, isn't it? A exactly. little bug saying, today high, tomorrow low, a bit like the pollen count. Philip, um, what sort of a coincidence is it that the, the, the Prime Minister should decide that the restrictions should go right in the middle of uh, the worst period of his Prime Ministership? Uh, it's no coincidence at all. Um, <laughs> I was speaking to someone the other day in number 10 and said, who said, what you need to understand is every decision made in Downing Street at the moment is directed to one objective, which is to saving the prime minister's um, position, and to one electorate. And that electorate is the conservative uh, backbenches, conservative MPs who will decide whether to have a vote of confidence, and if they do have one, how they'll vote in it. And there is a very vocal wing of the Tory party, which has never liked the restrictions and has been demanding their dismantling. And so, although 
as has been said, there was clearly a case to ease the restrictions. Um, I don't think there's the scientists would agree there's a case for to sort of just tear down the architecture. But basically, that's what the Tory backbenchers wanted. Uh, so that's what he's given them. Um, Johnson is reported to have made this decision without consulting with scientists at all, which is extraordinary. It just seems to fly in the face of every precedent. Yeah, it certainly does. You know, it's sort of naked politics. And I don't think the scientists think it's in, it's, you know, their position to stand up. You know, it's rather like the Met. They don't want to get involved in sort of, you know, the future of the prime minister. And I think the scientists are taking the same view. So keeping their heads down. Um, over Christmas, uh, several European countries reintroduced restrictions around Omicron. Um, Britain didn't. Uh, and uh, the prime minister has been keen to remind everybody about this whenever, whenever possible. Omicron turned out not to be that serious, but in terms of deaths, at least. Would his supporters simply say that, well, he's been proved right in hindsight on that one, so you, you need to trust him on the future uh, potential development of the virus? Well, look, I think, you know, there are moments when Britain has been right and moments when and when the government and Prime Minister have been right and moments when we've been horribly wrong. And I don't think you should judge the government's or the prime minister's performance on, you know, one call over Christmas or whatever, you know, and, you know, the prime minister never stops talking about, you know, we were ahead with vaccinations. I was looking at a chart the other day um, showing that we uh, now lag behind um, most other European countries in the percentage of, of uh, the population uh, vaccinated. So when, you know, hopefully this ends or ends comes to some sort of conclusion. Um, I don't think, you know, when we count the cost in Britain, we're going to come out of this saying, yeah, what a great job we did. Mm. You uh, recently wrote a piece on your Substack about what Britain's going to need after Boris Johnson. What do you think we need and what do you think we're going to get? Because they're not necessarily going to be the same thing. Well, I don't think we're going to get great leadership. I look at the potential candidates, um, uh, for his job. And I don't see someone there who's going to sort of, you know, take the country by the scruff of the of the neck and say, this is, you know, this is my program for economic revival. This is how we'll sort out all the post-Brexit problems. This is how we'll deal with COVID. You know, there aren't many, if you like, big beasts prowling in, um, in the Tory forests uh, these days. What I think the country above all needs and needs really desperately are two things. One, truthfulness, trustworthiness in government. We desperately need a prime minister who we can look at and say, this person is not lying. That of itself, I think, would be a huge leap from where we are today. The second thing we need is competence. A prime minister ready to read all his papers, ready to engage with officials, to engage with other cabinet ministers, steady, serious conclusions about the direction of policy. We've had neither of those two things. We've had neither trustworthiness nor competence. So in one sense, it seems to me almost, I could think of one or two exceptions, but almost whoever wins next will be a significant advance on the present incumbent of Downing Street. These are pretty low bars. Yeah, very low bars. Very, but you know, have you have we seen a prime minister who has set the bar so low? Have we seen a prime minister, you know, routinely referred to as a serial liar? 
I mean, you talk to mm. cabinet ministers and you say, well, the prime minister's a serial liar, and they just sort of shrug and laugh in a rather embarrassed way. I have never seen anything like it. There is a school of thought, which is that we are, if you want to be kind of all, all sort of historical about it, we are witnessing almost the necessary process of the Conservative Party coming to the end of this kind of decision making. If it's willing to appoint leaders purely on the basis of winning elections, if it's willing to do anything uh, to, to purely to win elections, then it was always going to end here. And we have to go through it because without it, the Conservative Party will never be able to re reconstruct itself or it'll be replaced by something else, but it cannot go on the way it has gone on. What, what, what do you think to that school of thought? I think, no, I think, look, there are moments when parties become exhausted in government and they need to be booted out, as it were. And that was very clear, for example, with the Conservatives in 1997. They'd been in power for 18 years and they needed to be booted out. It was also very clear you know, a few years earlier, that Margaret Thatcher's time after 11 years in Downing Street was up. But I don't think we have to have a moment in which the Prime Minister, you know, candidly lies to the Queen about the pror prorogation of Parliament to bring about a necessary change in the Tory party. Arthur, I feel I've left you out of this conversation. I want to ask you about a, a final thing about COVID. Uh, your wife works in the NHS. What what does she make of this decision to lift all the restrictions and uh, see what happens? Well, like most doctors, she's not very um not not very happy about it really. But I think what is happening, as I understand it, from from talking to her and and other other doctors we know that. Basically, there's now a self-regulating lockdown system in, in place. The people getting COVID are children. One of my kids has it at the moment, as it happens. Um, and the, uh, the people who are locking down are, are the clinically very vulnerable. Uh, care homes have been unvisitable for months on end. I've, I've got an elderly relative in a care home, and we haven't managed to see her since before Christmas because the, the, there are rolling lockdowns in care homes. And you could say that's a good thing. It's, you know, it's keeping people alive in a very high risk scenario. So I think what's really happening here is the government is walking away from the responsibility of managing this and leaving it to individuals, which you could argue is a very classically sort of conservative Johnson Johnsonite approach. He, he's not someone who likes responsibility personally. And, and he'd rather that the problem became individual rather than uh, governmental. So it's all on us again. Yeah. Finally, good news, everyone. Futurama, Matt Greening's animated comedy about future new New York, is being resurrected for the third time. It's better than The Simpsons. It just is. But bad news, Australophiles. Neighbours is about to be axed by Channel 5 after 40 years on air. Production has been paused indefinitely unless a new UK broadcaster can be found. What will students do with their time? So what TV shows ought to be retired and what ought to be brought back? I'm going to ask the panel. Yasmin... Um, Neighbours. How familiar are you with Neighbours? You know, this is this is an institution in the UK. It's what every single student watched for about 20 years. The, if only the listeners could see the blank look you're giving me right this now. This is the first I've heard of it. You've never heard of Neighbours <laughs> no. before. I'm sorry. Two countries separated yeah. by the Atlantic um, and a common language, obviously. Um, so Neighbours is basically a, an incredibly basic Australian soap. Uh, but it launched the careers of Russell Crowe, Margot Robbie, Liam Hemsworth, Ky Ky oh. Kylie, obviously. I know these people. The these great I Kylie. Know. Um People are devastated that it might be taken off air. Can you understand their sadness, even if you haven't a clue what it is they're sad about? Oh, of course. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think particularly with shows that feel like almost national treasures in a way or like things that just like 
everyone had in common. And I mean, I guess for me, I'm thinking back to like shows like Friends mm. or My Beloved Frasier or, you know, The Office or programs like that. You know, I think when those come to an end and they always at some point come to an end, it can almost feel like an emotional breakup of sorts. Like you kind of try to like, what am I going to do with my mm. time now? And I think that's especially true in sort of the binging era where, you know, you kind of invest heavily like you kind of just fall really deep, really fast. Um, quite timely for Valentine's Day, this yes. this metaphor. Um, and and then suddenly it's gone, boom. And I think, um, I mean, I certainly felt this way with shows like the the American version of The Office. You know, just you're you're kind of with something for so long. So, yeah, I can understand the sadness, even if I haven't seen the show. Futurama, on the other hand, is making a comeback, and they actually did have a proper good finale at the end of that. Mm. I think it's been it was cancelled by Fox, then brought back by Comedy Central twice then cancelled and now it's been brought back by Hulu because nothing ever ends. But they actually did do a genuinely moving proper, you know, insofar as, a, you know, a cartoon can be moving. It really was moving. Um, did you watch it? Were you a fan at all? I'm a culturalist hack and I'm making it known to all the listeners. No, I haven't seen that. I know a future on I haven't watched it. How can you live without having seen it? It is the it is better than The Simpsons by a mile. It is just... I didn't watch The Simpsons either. So we're oh, gonna... good God. <laughs> Fake American. So, look, you're a Frasier superfan. We know this. That's already coming back. Yeah. And we talked about this on the podcast before. And uh, But what, what else do you think ought to come back? Because it's maybe its time has come again or, or it ought to work now. I mean, so because – and I say this partly because I'm rewatching it currently because it's just one of my go-to comfort watches um, is The Office, the, the American mm. version, I must stress. Um, but – I think what I quite liked about that show was that, you know, I feel like so many of the shows that I watch now, particularly ones on Netflix, Hulu, et cetera, um, they're all just like quite long. I know there are shorter versions, but I think what I really loved about The Office is that it spanned for so long, but it was just like low commitment, low pressure and just so enjoyable. But it also like it could touch on a wide variety of issues that feel so untouchable today, whether mm. it's, you know, racism, homophobia and stuff like that. And it wouldn't touch on them by... Um, it would make fun of them almost like you would effectively like, you know, you'd have characters like Michael Scott being ridiculous, but like, you know, in a way where they would almost be making fun of his behavior. And I felt like it was just such a wonderful way of dealing with issues. And I'm I'm trying to even imagine just how the office would work in like a pandemic scenario. Like I imagine Dwight just being a full blown anti-vaxxer, like, you know, just purely like <laughs> um, wanted like very rugged and being like, no, I'm going to expose myself to COVID. I mean, I I could see that show maybe doing this period in that format quite well. He would probably die in a very special episode, wouldn't he? Yeah, is Dwight PC? I mean, would Dwight be cancelled? I don't know. He probably deserves to be. Mm. But I'd still think it's worth trying. What ought to be forcibly retired? Uh, it hasn't had a long run, but having watched what I love is blind is back. And I, I, for the for the uninitiated, lucky you. It's a show where basically it's a reality television dating show. Perfect for Valentine's Day. So love is blind is a show where the participants basically get engaged sight unseen and then decide if they want to get married. Um, and to be honest, I watched the first season and I found it so cringy. That when I heard that the second season is out, I was like, just no. Like, I, there, it's a bridge too far, and I categorically refuse. I just shows that make you kind of uncomfortable. Um, so, I'd, yeah, I'd probably cancel Love is Blind. I'm much more of a Love Island fan myself. The, to me, this is like, I cannot <laughs> tell the difference between the shows you just described. There's not a lot. <laughs> Arthur, how about you? What, uh, what deserves to come back? Um, I think what we lack at the moment is a really good, biting political satire. I was thinking, you know, the thick of it, those sorts of things. 
it's it's too easy to say, oh well, Boris and Boris Johnson and Donald Trump are beyond parody. That seems a bit lazy. I, I think we need we need a really um really sort of skewering political satire. Or we need something uh that that sort of stretches the boundaries of 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 good taste in the sort of Chris Morris uh mold. Uh, because it just seems to me that we're confronted with such ghastly politicians at the moment that they they need to be uh, heavily undermined by our brightest and best satirists. There does seem to be a fear of that on, and we've talked about this in the podcast before, there is a fear of that on mainstream broadcast television that you can't really go after politicians for anything but the most sort of, uh, you know, surface level, you know, they've got a slightly funny haircut rather than actually go after them for, you know, uh, policy decisions. Yes, and, and that fear may be because, uh, for example, um, the BBC is constantly targeted by the government and, and accused of uh, manufacturing certain news stories and all the rest of it. I mean, you know, the whole Partygate so-called scandal, largely led by ITV in the mirror, is apparently mm. the BBC's fault. So perhaps, you know, that is de- achieving the desired uh, result, which is to make them not uh, ridicule the government as much as they would. What would you like to uh, remove from the screens? Or what do you think had its day and would uh, should be allowed to die a natural death? Well, I think that there's a genre of television which had its day on the first day it ever aired and needs to die <laughs> immediately. And that is any show relating to property. So, you know, it's it's all the Kirsty Allsop stuff. It's the one where the people get to move to the countryside, the one where they move to France or buy an apartment in Spain or whatever. The whole thing needs to go. And, you know, I'm going to make some very uh, overblown claim here that the the housing crisis in Britain has been significantly worsened by this bizarre sort of cultural obsession with watching other people move house when really people just need shelter. And, you know, it should be clean, warm and safe. And and we should stop treating property as this bizarre money spinning activity. I think they should price all the properties in avocado on toasts. <laughs> How many avocado on toasts would this lovely farmhouse with uh, ivy up the walls cost? 21 million avocados on toast. Um, Philip, you're not much of a TV person, are you? I'm not. Um, I confess. I don't watch any of these, you know, neighbours, um, <laughs> uh, Coronation Street, which I believe is still running. East End. Still going and still very good, actually. Coronation Street is very good. East End is not so much, but Coronation Street is excellent. But I don't, I don't regard them as offensive, so mm. I don't feel passionately. I, you know, I don't have to turn them on, and you know, very few of us now watch um, sort of linear TV in that way. So you can, you can always switch to something else. So I was sort of reflecting on this, and the only TV programs I think I would ban, given that there's so much, you know, bandwidth out there, would be. Anything with Piers Morgan in it, <laughs> um, I think there 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 would be an absolute ban. And as for bringing things back, I rather agree with Arthur on the need for political satire. I think we should reinvent uh, a program like uh, Yes Minister or Yes Prime Minister that can take a, you know, once Boris Johnson has gone, take a sort of kinder but sort of slightly um, sceptical uh, look at our politicians. Um, so I'd bring that back. And I'd also bring back the other satire, which I think was excellent, which was West 1A, the satire about the BBC. Oh, W1A, yes. Uh, w, yeah, which I thought was absolutely tremendous. And I'm a great fan of the BBC, and I disagree uh 
well, I mean, who could agree with Nadine Doris on on anything? <laughs> but um, uh, but so I and I deprecate the the government's attempt to undermine it. On the other hand, there's enough in the BBC to merit uh, which what I thought was a very good satire um, uh, with with that with that program. So I'd bring that back. Well, my nominations are, I would have said Grange Hill because I could never believe that there couldn't be a space for a drama for kids set in the place where kids spend their time. Grange Hill was absolutely fantastic, but they are actually bringing it back. So that's that's fine. So if that's coming back, I would suggest bring back Brookside, the real story of modern suburban Britain. The material is there in vast amounts, everything from the cost of living crisis to zero hours contracts, but also sexuality, identity, nationalism, populism. There is no issue soap left anymore. And we're absolutely neck deep in issues. You wouldn't even need to set it in Liverpool, set it in Birmingham, something like that. Um, The one to cancel, without question, it's got to be question time. Mm. It is a shadow Mm. of its former self. It is an annoying Punch and Judy show, which gets absolutely nowhere. It doesn't reflect reality anymore. It's binary arguments in a multipolar world. And worse than that, it kind of crystallises just how badly balance doesn't work anymore. The, the old, old-fashioned old BBC idea of balance, that you just have two people shouting their positions at, at each other, it's, it's no longer fit for purpose. And I think one thing I've noticed over the years, recent years, is that the more everybody I know, the more they like politics, the less they want to watch Question Time because it just mm. drives them into a pointless rage. So that's my, that's my suggestion. It's had its day. And that brings us to the end of this week's bunker, which means it's time for the panel's escape routes. What are the films, music, books and miscellaneous activities can include TV, but Philip doesn't have to say any TV if he doesn't want to, that have enabled our panellists to take themselves away from the bruising world of politics. Arthur, what's your escape route this week? Well, um, I I went to see Stuart Lee, the comedian, uh, do a live Mm. show. And it was very pleasing because... Of course, Stuart Lee has been uh, sometimes described as a kind of archetypal metropolitan liberal elite uh, comedian. But of course, he, he grew up in the Midlands and I went to see him in a theatre in the Midlands in Malvern in Worcestershire. So there was something quite pleasing about uh, a particular stereotype uh, that it would only be North London Guardian readers who could find him funny. And there was a theatre absolutely packed to the rafters in provincial England uh, finding him incredibly funny. So, yeah, Stuart Lee, always always a, a belly laugh. There you go. And there are Guardian readers across the country, not there just There are, in, e- not even, the even in Worcestershire. Amazing stuff. Uh, Yasmin, how about you? So I've been increasingly frequenting my local climbing centre, The Castle, um, which I'm going to, yeah, plug here because it's a wonderful place to go, great place to forget about politics and potentially fall from not-so-great heights. So, um it is a fantastic place. Bring on the wall. It is. It's. I, I didn't think you were a climbing type of person. Oh, yeah. I'm mostly bouldering. I'm trying to learn how to belay with a double figure of eight knots. So once I get that sorted, I'll be doing that as well. But, yeah, no, I love it. I think it's a great, like, post-pandemic sport, like, if anyone's interested in getting into it as well. Because at least the castle, it's such a, like, huge, pretty well-ventilated space because it's always very drafty. Um, but, yeah, so I've been doing more of that and I've been enjoying it very much. I'm really happy to learn that Yasmin is a fellow climber. I, I did a lot of my early climbing in the castle. Oh, no way. There you go. Philip, when you're not watching television, uh, which you aren't, uh, what's your escape route from the horrible world of politics and current affairs? Well, I've, um, redis- I've discovered in during lockdown that there's a purpose to walking other than <laughs> in, from getting from A to B. So, you know, it probably shows my age, but I actually now 
enjoy walking um, and looking at my environment. I enjoy walking in nice places in the country or across Wandsworth Common where I live. Um, but I also like just walking around and looking at places um, in a way that I haven't done probably ever, if, well, certainly for the last 30 or 40 years. So that's my um, escape route. And it's also it's quite uh, fortuitous because I'm far too fat and um, walking <laughs> actually helps you get rid of a little bit of the fat. Well, this this is uh, lockdown made uh, psychogeographical flaneurs of all of us, and it turned us all into Will Self, wandering around streets and sort of uh, thinking about what they would have been like in you know Roman times. Um, my escape route: I went to see a band. I actually went to a gig. It was so exciting. I went to see a new band called High School. They are Australian, and if you like early New Order, like I do, and if your favourite new early New Order song is Procession then this is the band for you. Um, they look fantastic. They have that kind of scratchy DIY recorded in a gigantic frozen meat locker feel of early New Order. And they're so young and they're so full of energy. They're brilliant. They're called High School. Uh, we're going to play a track by them on the next edition of The Culture Bunker. So if you're a long-time subscriber, you will get to hear that. And that is the end of this week's Bunker. Thank you to Arthur Snell. Thank you for having me. Thank you to Yasmin Sahan. Thank you. And thank you to our special guest, Philip Stevens. Thank you. We'll be back tomorrow with another daily and the full-length show this time next week. Don't forget the Culture Bunkers on Saturday. Uh, remember, if you like this podcast, you can share it with some friends and help to spread the word. And if you really liked it, you could support us on Patreon for early episodes, merchandise, and all manner of extras. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Backers for the podcast, get a shout-out at the end, and here are some now. So it's hello and many thanks from me to Rob Hutchins and Simon Lewis. Best wishes from me to Diane Turner and Deborah Pella. And big thanks from me to Gustav Strenger and Erica Harrison, no relation. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The Bunker was presented by Andrew Harrison with audio production from me, Robin Hooper. The Bunker is produced by Jelena Sofrenovic and Jacob Archbold. Group editor is Andrew Harrison. Lead producer is Jacob Jarrett. Theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson and The Bunker is a Podmaster production.